summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Then down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. Hello, and welcome to the Cinema in Seconds podcast. This is a podcast where we look at small moments in great movies. And this week, summer is here, so we are looking at summertime movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And yeah, it's a summer. Happy summer, Dan. Uh, happy summer, Ian. I don't feel very happy about it. It's blisteringly hot. And every time I leave the house, I feel like I need to change my clothes when I come back because I'm just drenched in sweat. It is so, very hot here as well. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, today I was out briefly and I'm like, oh, it's not too bad. And then I got out into like direct sunlight and I'm like, oh, oh never mind. <laughs> it is that bad. Um, it's it's scorching my my flesh. But uh, but that's OK. Summer's a lot less magical when you're an adult, I think. <laughs> I'm uh it's okay when you're a teacher. <laughs> well, I mean, sure. Sure. That's true. And I'm going to Vegas in a few weeks, so I uh I need to get used to the heat. That's true, yeah. It's gonna be like That's the thing with there. Vegas, it's like you want to dress like kind of classy and nice, like you know, like you're in casino, but it's really hot, so you kind of want to wear like khakis. Yep. <laughs> It'll be fine. Yep. Well, okay. um, this was your your idea for an episode. I don't. Do we do a summer theme last year? I don't think so. Hmm. Interesting. This seemed like the thing to do this year. Yeah, it it felt right. Although we were talking a lot about the heat, and it seems like our moments don't really aren't really about that in terms of, cause I was thinking immediately about movies like do the right thing is the masterpiece of it, but also dog day afternoon where they're so good at stressing, like how hot it is. But I ended up not doing that at all really with my choices. Um, so, which is, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Probably because I was like, I don't do the right thing is such an obvious choice for like summer. Cause it is it's so good at rendering it that I almost was like, you can't do it. You can't choose that. <laughs> It's too much the the masterpiece in this field. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I just kind of went with things that gave the summer vibe, things like the the vacationy vibe. I suppose that's what I'm mm -hmm. going for. Yeah, it's a good way to think about it. Yeah. Um, all righty, should we yeah. get started? Yeah, why don't you start us off? All right, I'm going to start us off with um, what is not technically the first day of summer. Uh, but is the first day of summer from the perspective of a high school student, which is the last day of school from mm -hmm. Dazed and Confused, Richard Linklater's wonderful film about teenagers in 1976 who it's like May 28th or something, last day of school, and they ju it's just a hangout movie, and you just spend a, a day with them, and it starts in school on the last day, very aimless and uh, sort of going nowhere, and then when school breaks, it's them that first night of... Uh, going to parties, going to different hangouts, trying to hook up a party in the first place. There's a wonderful little subplot about uh, uh, a, a character's um, kegs being delivered too early when his parents are still home. So that gets kiboshed. It's, it's so good. And it's, um, it's a great film that really captures the feeling of like towards the end as it starts to, the party starts to wind down. Uh, there's an amazing shot of just like the beer keg being empty and the, the, you don't even see what character it is. It's just an insert of a hand trying to fill a cup and it won't. It just like dumps whatever's left on the top of the keg and kind of hangs it there. And as it comes to this wrap up, it really has that feeling of like the party coming to an end, the day starting to break and, uh, you know, needing to kind of move on. And it is it, to, to the point that like, as it starts to come, you're really like, oh no, I don't want this movie to stop. <laughs> but um with that comes a little bit of melancholy and the moment I really like, and it's a pretty big scene, but it's the scene where um, Pink, who's the main character, who's been sort of weighing if he wants to continue playing football next year when he's a senior. And also because his coaches have asked the team to sign this absurd document that they promise they will not jeopardize their body with uh, any alcohol or drugs or uh, sex after midnight or something or anything that can like, affect their ability to get a state championship and he doesn't want to sign it even though the rest of the team's like just sign it and do whatever you want anyway but this is like a point of principle for him um but he and some friends are hanging around on the football field at night uh getting high 
and just hanging out. And Pink is being a little bit melancholic about his life and, uh, you know, feeling trapped and alienated. And what I really like is that his girlfriend calls out that, you know, you guys act like you're so oppressed, but you are kings of the school. You get away with whatever you want. You're like widely loved by both the faculty and your peers. Like you, you have everything. Why are you acting like you're so hard done by? And he has the famous line of uh, all I'm saying is if I ever start referring to this as the best years of my life, remind me to kill myself. And he gets up and kind of walks off. And then as he walks off, his buddy, who's also on the football team, starts giving the speech about all I want to be able to say is when I look back is I did it the best I could while I was stuck here. I, I tried my best while I was here. I played my hardest while I was here. I had the most fun I had while I was here. And as he's giving the speech, it's a shot of pink on the field that's very slowly just kind of circling him. And it doesn't fully go the full 360, just small movement. And it is in very subtly in slow motion. And I'm not sure if they just altered the frame rate uh, so that it's it's more frames being processed each second so it feels longer or if it's just a slow motion effect or what, how they exactly did it. But it's very subtle and it gives the shot a slight otherworldly energy as if you're having almost, or as if you're experiencing with Pink an out-of-body experience, this really like moment of awareness and rumination. And it's enhanced by the fact that the... Um, Sorry, my cat jumped up and was scratching something. It's enhanced by the fact that as the camera is doing this and the slight slow motion effect is on, the friend's speech is being played uh, off screen. You don't see him speaking, but it is diegetic and it's being spoken in, at a normal speed, normal tone. So it's very like verisimilitudinous. It feels real while at the same time the visual is slightly um, unreal, which I think really adds that sense of like, being in the moment but also outside of it and what i really like is towards the end of the scene um the comment one sec my cat scratching stuff again <laughs> is that as his speech comes to an end he has this line like he's you know played the hardest i could while i was there and he, the last line is like had sex with as many chicks as i could while i was stuck here and they all laugh and pink laughs too although in a slight slow motion again and what I like about that, too, is in addition, it ties in with Pink's girlfriend, Simone's line about why are you acting like you're so oppressed of like undercutting the character's melancholy with humor in a way that like when you're a teenager, not every teenager, I suppose, but a lot of teenagers can be really pretentious and mopey about various things at points that's a little bit insufferable and ridiculous. And I like that there's a, jo a joke here that um, kind of pokes at that, like, these characters aren't really that profound or, or deep in examining their own lives. Um, but at the same time, I find that the humor, it feels natural, first of all, because it's totally keeping with that character who's, you know, that he's very much that kind of character in the jokes he tells throughout the movie. But I also find that while it adds an element of lightness to the scene and to its melancholy, it doesn't fully undo it. Because I think it's, it's very, it's, very easy when uh, filmmakers write teenagers to really buy in fully to their pretentious whinging and treat it like poetry. I'm thinking about an American beauty when Wes Bentley's giving this, you know, like beautiful reading of a trash bag blowing in the wind. And it's like the film finds is thinks he's entirely right. He treats him like he's Yoda. And it's just like the older I get, the more I watch it. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But I also think it's easy to go too far the other way and just dismiss the, uh, sort of um, feelings and anxieties of teenagers as being just complete, you know, pretentious wankery. And I think this scene hits like a really perfect balance of having enough self-awareness to know that this character is kind of full of shit, that he has everything he could want and is is on top of the world in the world that he lives in, but also takes him seriously enough too. It recognizes that he does have, his feelings are legitimate and genuine and aren't invalid just because of uh, other external factors that maybe make his life better than it does for other people. And I just think that the way that, that the slight slow motion effect on that shot, it's so perfect in terms of being like beautiful and contemplative and thoughtful without indulging too, too much in turning its character into like some martyr, which I think would have been completely inappropriate. Um, and yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's a really good pick. It's an interesting uh, idea that Linkletter is playing with just 
the idea of perspective and points of view uh, with these characters and you're because you're seeing really three different approaches to to the high school life of these football players right you got his mopey mopiness you've got his friends like just do what i can do and then you got like the girlfriends trying to get him to see it from another angle like you don't really have it that bad mm -hmm. um so it could be like a an interesting play on the technical perspective of the film kind of playing with the idea of well you're actually seeing the characters perspectives in a few different areas here in the one scene i like that uh Linklater is so good at making these like hangout movies, but tying it to, you know, I, I don't want to say personal crises because I, I mean, that sounds dramatic. I mean, he's just deciding whether or not to go to football, but it seems like a big deal because it is a big deal to him. Right. Mm -hmm. And he kind of, and it's a good, it's a good through line for the movie to make it more than just teenagers hanging out right more than just can't hardly wait or something right yeah there is some there is a dramatic question so that the movie can still have a confrontation or a climax to end on it doesn't just stop yeah um it's similar to like american graffiti in that way right where you've got mm -hmm. Ron howard's characters you know should i go to university should i not and that kind of yeah and link ladder very much cites that as a model um which is interesting. He's talked about before how when the film flopped, he was really worried about his career because he's like, this is my like teen comedy, basically. It's my American graffiti. And if this is too art house, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, which is fair. He's, he, yeah. <laughs> he's had a strange career in that regard where like School of Rock is his only like big movie. Cause, like, and I guess Boyhood in the realm of what it was doing, it wasn't a blockbuster by any stretch, but certainly was his was a well-publicized, large, widely discussed film that was very successful financially. But like, you'd think after Boyhood, he'd have that momentum to keep doing well. But all the movies he's made, with the exception of Where'd You Go, Bernadette, since Boyhood, I think have been really good, and none of them have been particularly successful. Yeah, it's interesting that he doesn't catch on with audiences because even though he's, I don't know if art like he's artful in what the movies he's making, but he's also making really fun movies. Like mm -hmm. they're movies that are very enjoyable. Yeah, and they're so. very like they can be enjoyed from a lot of different perspectives. You can enjoy them if you're like a snobby film uh, you know, art house guy. And you can enjoy it if you're just like a dad, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's 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 I'm not sure what it says about the the film. <clears throat> culture today that it, he has such trouble catching on in a big way but um it's funny too because talking about the whole like will he, he play sports or not um i know link ladder played baseball through college and i do wonder how much of i mean obviously the wiley wiggins character of uh, mitch is the baseball player in the movie so he's probably the more direct stand-in for link ladder but <clears throat> i have to assume link ladder growing up as an athlete, he was good enough as a baseball player to play it in college. Um, but also with this interest in film and art, he probably did have a similar like choice of like, which of these avenues do I want to take? Right. Do I want to be an athlete? Do I even want to be an athlete? Or is there something else I want more? And you don't really get with pink him wanting to like make movies or anything like that. But that basic conflict of like, do I really want to do this? Um, you know, and keep doing it, I think is uh, an interesting thing to think about from an autobiographical perspective, because he Linklater had to have had similar questions for himself. And I assume he had similar pressures from older people in his life who were like, oh, like, because there's one old timer who uh, we see talking to Pink, who's like, is that arm ready to throw 200 yards for us next fall? And I have to assume Linklater had similar comments from in small town Texas of people saying stuff like that to him. Yeah, so. that makes sense. I think, yeah, I like uh, I like what you said too about you know the musings, the teenager musings, and how he's he he really straddles that line, right? And this is he's explored this. I think in Boyhood he does that a lot too, right? Because mm -hmm. um, the character in Boyhood Boyhood can be kind of you know going through all these existential thoughts and kind of comes off as silly, but also takes him seriously at the same time. So this is something he comes back to in his career as well. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah it's it, done just perfectly here, I'd say. 
and it does remind me of like I, I find it a very it's not just summer but when I think back about like hanging out with my friends as a teenager and thinking about conversations like that I was never an athlete so I never had to worry about do I want to keep playing no one <laughs> wanted my ass on the field but um you know those like you know especially when it's later in the night or early in the morning depending on your perspective and every, the the initial sort of excitement's kind of winded down and it's just you and like a couple other friends and you're getting more real um mm -hmm. you know and, and thinking back to those moments i think it captures those feelings really well of how like and even in those moments you'll be kind of weaving in and out from like trying to say something profound or thoughtful or introspective about your own life but you're also still goofing off with your friends um so and it's totally just right for the movie too because it is it's not really a comedy like i, I think if you're watching it for like laugh a minute you're probably going to be disappointed but it isn't like a feel-good amiable hangout film and if it got too bogged down and like you know the sort of existential or introspective questions i don't think it would have uh would have worked particularly well no definitely not so yeah it's very much like an exists with these characters but there's and i love the variety of characters that the movie has too because because it really does jump from place to place and kind of mm -hmm. get you to see all aspects like we like i just mentioned with the perspective idea well you get perspectives of everybody in this high school realm mm -hmm. um, during this one night and it's it's just awesome to see yeah, it's really sophisticated how Linklater does that. It's funny, too, because this film before this was Slacker, which was kind of an indie darling, but is very much like an art house film. You couldn't really recommend that to, like, your yeah. average moviegoer. Have you seen Slacker? Not yet, no. Okay. I'm fighting to pretty soon. But. It's interesting, but it's got this very, like, you'll follow one character for a bit, and then they'll meet somebody, and then you'll follow that person instead, and you'll, like, never go back to that character you saw before. Um and it's kind of like a gimmick to rest the movie on, but it's a very effective one. And it does convey that sense of multiple perspectives and also just like the sense of a world. And he does a similar thing here, but it's both way more accessible because it's way more fun than Slacker is. And it's also, I think, actually a lot more sophisticated because you're not even thinking about it as you're watching it. You're not thinking about, oh, it's such a wide perspective, amount of perspectives in this almost sociological study of this community. It's just like you're having fun getting swept up in in all these characters' lives. And I love how you'll you'll have a conversation and characters will talk, and then the camera will just kind of drift away. And you don't even see, hear that conversation, you know, finish out, and then you catch up with those people later in different contexts. It's it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah, he's very thoughtful, like, he, like your moment. Like, he's very thoughtful about what he's doing with the camera. Mm-hmm, yeah. And he doesn't always get the credit for that. I think people think of him as being like, oh, he just, you know, lets the actors do the magic and that's the real. But he's not showy with his visuals, but they are important. Yeah. So. Awesome. Good pick. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to go to, well, it's on. It's, uh, I guess you kind of think of it as another hangout movie. It's not quite as sophisticated, <laughs> uh, but it's The Great Outdoors with uh, John Candy and Dan Hackroyd. And the reason I picked this is because when you think about summer movies, this is a summer movie. It's, um, <laughs> I mean, it's about two families that are on a camping trip, basically. And so um, as somebody who's spent a lot of time camping in my childhood, this has always been a movie that kind of, this, this is a movie I've grown up with. So take it with a grain of salt of, you know, it's it's a nostalgic movie for me for sure. Were you were you guys ever campers back when you were a kid, Dan? Uh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone camping a couple times. I'm going camping in about two weeks um, with uh, with Brooke and uh, some of her friends, but uh, not generally much of a camper. So. It's uh, yeah, we were quite a bit. So I have some fondness for this movie. It's basically John Candy and his family go camping, and then their his in-laws show up how the in-laws are related you don't really know it's like is uh dan Aykroyd his wife's brother or the sister's sisters i have no idea they don't actually even say <laughs> all we're supposed to get from this is that they're relatives um they're not direct brothers they're brothers-in-law however it works so uh and so he kind of comes in and dan Aykroyd kind of plays this like wall street slick guy um, with a lot more money and he's very arrogant and so of course 
John Candy doesn't really like him, and they clash quite a bit. But it's it's about them trying to to get along. And the moment I'm picking is something really really small. So I think one of the things that this movie is famous for is the bear scene at the end, where they get attacked by this giant bear. Um, and there's a scene where the bear breaks into the cabin and like stands up on his two feet, and you and Dad Aykroyd is on the other side, and you see him, and he just is standing with like his mouth agape and but it's completely silent it's like a silent scream and I, I don't know for some reason when i watched it this last time that really just made me laugh because it's it's almost like he's digging into to like the classics like uh monty python is the first thing i thought of like, mm -hmm. maybe like the, the uh, holy grail where he's they've just got those they're just looking and having these silent screams and coming back to them and it kind of i liked it because it it made me realize that you know dan Aykroyd is one of those 80s comedians but he's him and john candy have been living their whole life in comedy and it makes it reminds you that they're probably building off of everybody who came before right like the Marx Brothers, and because they're probably studying comedy all this time, and so a moment like that just really makes me appreciate, um, you know, their their craft and their commitment to it, and their um, you know, their influences. I suppose <laughs> I don't know why I that pointed out to me. It's something really, really small, but I just mm. I just laughed, and I think, and I wanted to point out too that I think Dan Aykroyd is awesome in this movie like he's yeah. he, he he plays that arrogant jerk role really well um but i don't think and you said you haven't seen this one right i've not no i would say that this is kind of a like john hughes didn't direct this one but he did write it oh, okay for him i think this is definitely a precursor to planes trains and automobiles interesting the only interesting thing is that John Candy's role switches in Planes, Trains, where he's now the right the annoying guy, and then in Planes, Trains, whereas this, it's Dan Aykroyd is in that role, mm -hmm. and these two these two men have to basically find some common ground throughout the movie. So it's very very similar in that regard. Does it have a similar sense of like because Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is like a very funny comedy, but it also kind of hits hits you with. Uh some emotions there at the end with uh, the characters. Does The Great Outdoors, you don't have to go into too much detail, but does it do anything similar in that regard? It, it does, not to the same level of success. But yeah, I think in in the way that these two characters end up coming to respect each other and um, basically find a way to get along by the end, mm -hmm. that's where that's where the emotional core kind of takes place in the movie. So right. Well, it's um for one I want to kind of just quickly talk about how you mentioned like Aykroyd, his how good he is as an actor in this movie and also his uh you know uh honed comedic skills just cuz I think it's easy now to kind of take Aykroyd for granted and forget how good he can be just because I mean one I can't even remember the last movie he would have yeah, done he that. He hasn't done much lately. Like other than like cameos in new terrible Ghostbusters movies. <laughs> I don't know what you'd see him in. And he's also like kind of a kook in real life, like going mm -hmm. on CNN talking about how humanity will never have an encounter with an extraterrestrial after 9-11. And it's like, <laughs> thanks for coming on, Dan. <laughs> but he is like, he's a really, like he's a very creative person and he's a very good comedic actor. Um, and it's it's good to kind of, it's fun to go back to movies when, where he's in his prime still. And uh, even if, from what I gather, The Great Outdoors is maybe not one of his like, defining accomplishments but he's still performing at a high level the other thing i think is interesting though especially compared to dazed and confused is how like the difference in a summer movie for teenagers versus one for adults uh -huh. and this notion of like you know your friends as an adult man being not really like your friends in that really like closely knit bond way but just like either like your wife's friends or your, your, you know, distant relatives who are also around the same age who maybe you get along, but you're not like buddies the way that your buddies are when you're a teenager or when you're a kid, not necessarily like that's, that's obviously not like a rule. There's tons of exceptions, but it does seem to reflect an interesting shift in how um, male friendships work 
Yeah, and that's something that when I watched it as an adult, like only a few weeks ago, really stood out to me because as a kid, you don't really pay attention to the adult relationships in the movie. But this time I was, you know, there's more interest there because you have more experience. The, uh, I will say one thing, like going back to the tying it into the summer and the whole idea of camping. This movie, when I was watching it, I was like, you know, the, the really impressive part about this movie is how many memorable set pieces it has. Mm-hmm. Because usually a movie like this, like one of these 80s comedies, family film ideas, will have like two or maybe three like big set pieces that everybody kind of remembers. But Great Outdoors is a lot. Because if you think about it, there's... Well, I don't. You haven't seen the film, but maybe you'll you'll know some of these scenes. I'm not sure, but there's the idea of the bear, right? So the bear scene at the end is pretty famous, and you shoot the bear in the ass, and that's hilarious. And, uh, <laughs> and you, but you've also got like there's this there's this running gag of the raccoons always uh, trying to get into their garbage cans, and then the raccoons are like you you know what they're saying because they're subtitled in raccoon language. Um, you've got the scene where he eats the giant steak. Which um, Simpsons ripped off during the, the trucker episode. Uh, you've got the scene where he's water skiing, and there's all these all these like set pieces. It's just jam packed with like memorable scenes. And as I was watching it, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that part. Oh yeah, I remember that part. And it's impressive in that way. Like I mm-hmm. I know it's not a top level film, but it's it is jam packed with like just fun set pieces, which is. Mm-hmm you really hope to get out of a, a movie like this well it's interesting it's an era where like comedy movies had that because comedy movies could be like relatively large movies mm-hmm. um because comedies don't really exist now outside of like jokey marvel movies um like jokes in marvel movies being or on you know tv and streaming like there's not i know technically comedy films still get made and i think like last year there were a lot of films i found really funny but it was stuff like uh, Licorice Pizza and um, The French Dispatch, which I think are comedies and great ones for that matter, but it's not necessarily what like you would first think of when you're like, yeah, I'm going to go see a comedy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a Wes Anderson anthology film done in as a tribute to magazines like The New Yorker. Hilarious. <laughs> and it is. Um, but yeah, um, I wanted to ask too, you, you talked about the bear scene a couple times and I know you're uh uh, you like to camp and that you're you live in um you know an area of Canada where like going camping means you could be encountered with a bear. Have you ever had a bear encounter? I mean nothing dramatic. I've seen bears, yeah. Like okay. we, we see them on the side of the road and stuff. Um there was the only thing is there was a bear pretty close to one of the cabins we were staying in and we had to like stay in the cabin, but that's nothing crazy. Although okay. I will say my sister actually had a bear like right outside her tent, like around and uh, basically they call, had to call like call 911 and get somebody to like come and honk their horn and get the bear away. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I'd handle that too well. No. Well, I'm glad that you've never had your, your, the revenant out in the woods. So that's nice. Cool. Um, good pick. Did you just rewatch this like as an adult recently or had it been, yeah, like, had it been a long time? Preparation for this. Cool. I say, hmm, what's a summer movie? Maybe this one. So, yeah. So it's, it's a good pick. And so you hadn't seen it since you were like a kid not for a while. Yeah. Cool. And it seemed to hold up for you pretty well. Yeah. I mean, it's, I can see it's eighties cheesiness in a, in a sense, but it's still fun. Like it's still got those set pieces and, I don't know how much of that is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. That's it's, good. It's a, it's a fun movie. Right on. Um, well, I'll transition to a film that's also known for being fun and light. Igmar Bergman's Summer with Monica. Uh, I knew as soon as we were doing Summer, I'm like, okay, there's like three Bergman films with Summer in the title. I need to do one of them. <laughs> and this is the one I chose. And it's the one that... Um, I don't think is my favorite of his summer movies. I think smiles of a summer night is the best in part, just cause it's like of the comedies he made. It's the only one that's truly actually laugh out loud, funny. Um, but summer with Monica, which is a, 
uh, Summer Romance, which uh, his other summer film, Summer Interlude, is also a summer romance between two young people who elope together and then come back after the summer and uh, she's pregnant, he has to work, the relationship collapses pretty quickly. But the moment I'm choosing comes much earlier in the film and it's uh, basically Harry is our main character. He meets Monica and starts to kind of fall for her and they're having their little romance. And before they elope, he works in like the back room of the store where he's like uh, basically stacking um, like plates and bowls and other glass items and stuff. And uh, early in the film, we see him getting chastised for dropping something and breaking it. And then later he's getting yelled at by his boss and, you know, talked down to again, and the boss leaves and we see Harry grab a cup and go to throw it against the door where the boss just walked out of. And he stops himself and he puts it down and he kind of stares at the other glasses and he chooses one and just like very delicately pushes it off and it breaks and he smiles to himself. And I think this is such a wonderful encapsulation of his character in terms of like, you know, wanting to rebel and uh, stick it to his boss, but like not really having the confidence to and just taking pleasure instead in this like very, very feeble act of resistance. Um, I think it's just so such a good visual way to tell you so much about this person who is clearly unhappy with his life, but doesn't really have the strength to confront those things. And I also think it is a wonderful piece of foreshadowing because it really telegraphs the fact that Monica, who's this woman who really wants to escape her drab life and, and have, you know, romance and excitement and freedom and adventure that eventually Harry is going to bore her because he's too much of a limp noodle to really um, keep her attention. And sure enough, you know, as he starts working later on and she starts cheating, um, I think it's a great way of like, and you don't really think about that while you're watching it when you first see him break the glass, but it's just as later on reflecting, it's like, yeah, it checks out. It, all, it was all there from the start. So I think it's wonderful from a screenwriting and direction perspective. But the other thing I think about it and trying to tie it to this week's theme of uh, summer movies is that, you know, after high school, summers became less associated for me with like, you know, the sort of romance and uh, possibilities of hanging out with friends and more with the drudgery of working my summer job to pay my tuition and hating my life. <laughs> so, but I think back to those, and not that I was ever like breaking stuff deliberately, but I thought about how when you're in your job, and especially like me, like there's not, you know, coming from a small town where there's really not a lot of places to work in the area, I didn't have a lot of options. So it's like, I can't really make too much of a stand or make too much of a stink. And just, so those, it kind of makes you rethink or made me rethink the, meekness of smashing one glass as instead of being like this act of like oh you know this like sort of weakened uh character instead really understanding treasuring the small bits of resistance you you do have you know the small bits of rule breaking and defiance you can show to your job because you can't you know you can't do what you want to do you can't you know tear off your uniform and storm out the front door so you know you you take it in little ways so I never broke anything. My old bosses are listening. Not that I really, what are you going to do, fire me? I don't work there anymore. Come on. But um, but just those little things of like, that you kind of take for yourself and nobody else sees. And it doesn't really materially matter, but it it's it's something for you to at least hold on to in those moments. And, uh, you know, I, I do think there's value in that. So. Yeah, good pick. So, so do you think that Bergman is doing like a dual um idea with this like using it as a character moment to tell character and as a foreshadowing moment for the really like are you saying the glass is the relationship yeah i mean um you can i do think it's meant to if it's not deliberate foreshadowing i think it's just an example of like the character writing being so consistent that the behavior early predicts the behavior later um i don't know if bergman was consciously as he was writing that thinking of it as like this is foreshadowing but I think it it's so strongly consistent with the character that it ends up reading as such. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, I have no idea though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's and he's a very like he comes from the world of like of stage plays too. And I'm thinking about how like how essential and he wrote a lot of his own most of his own films 
um, sometimes with a co-writer and sometimes he was adapting or drawing influence from elsewhere, but a lot of the stuff is his own writing. So I have to assume he's thinking pretty critically about uh, um, sort of writerly aspects of it. And it's not just about like the image. Um, so, and it's a good example too, of how, like, even though this film, it's kind of a hangout movie, not in the same way that Dazed and Confused is, but like the middle stretch, you're kind of just on the Island with these characters indulging in uh, their summer romance and the, and the, it's actually another good movie about like the summer weather. Cause those Swedish islands look just exquisite. Um, but, uh, in spite of that, in spite of it being like kind of a loosely structured hangout movie, there is a story and there's a plot and there's, you know, motivation in the details. It's just not as highly telegraphed as it is in like a narrative driven movie, but it's all there. Hmm. So in what way, so when he smashes the glass, and you're saying that it's kind of foreshadowing what happens later with the relationship. Well, specifically uh, this notion that like he won't he won't smash the glass in like standing up for himself and like being assertive in what he wants. It's like he'll he'll like really meekly do something that like maybe feels good to him but doesn't materially change his situation. And so Monica who wants a better life and Harry who's content to just follow the rules and slowly follow along, she he's not going to be able to give her that. Right. Um, so, and I think it's also, it's a, this is a tricky film as like a, from a certain perspective to make, because it would be very easy to either write Harry as like an ineffective wimp where you're like, this guy's a loser, but it would also be easy to write Monica as like a really regressive, like, you know, heartless woman who like ruins this young man's life and, you know, the sort of negative slurs that get associated with that kind of woman. And I think you could read the movie like that potentially, but I think Bergman does a really good job of giving you a lot of each character. So you understand and empathize with both of them. You get why Harry, you know, as much as you maybe want him to smash the glass and stand up to his boss, you get why he can't in the same way that most of us can't. Right. Uh, and at the same time, you get why Monica is like, is feels stifled and unhappy in her life and why she would lash out and, and rebel. So I don't, while you might have certain judgments that you bring to it in terms of which character you empathize with more and which one you you feel uh, you know is is more of the villain not that there has to be a villain but which one you see in a more negative light um you know you can kind of make those decisions but the film does a remarkable job of of being um fair i think to all parties and giving them uh sufficient characterization that you understand them at least so, so where is this in your in your bergman Ooh. Well, <laughs> question I know, but going by my current rewatch of them, I'm like, so I'm going to exclude anything that he made after 1969, even the ones that I've seen, because I'm sort of re marathoning through all of them. I don't, it's more like sort of upper middle, maybe like it's not, I don't think it's in the masterpiece tier with seven seal or wild strawberries um, or persona. I don't even think it's in, the less famous, but in my opinion, also five-star masterpiece category of the Virgin Spring or Winter Light or Shame. Um, granted, it's still a four and a half star movie, so you know it's tricky. Um, I, I'd rank it am among things that he was making at this period, like uh, Summer Interlude or Sawdust and Tinsel, um, which were at the time he's making them the best movies he's making. But I think he still had room to get even better. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I was to do like a top 20, I'd say this would probably fall in like between, I don't know, this is obviously rough, but like 13 to nine, like those kind of slots. Yeah. Um, so Bergman, cool. man, he made so many movies and not all of them are like masterpieces, but a lot of them are, he had like an insane run. He, he's got one of those like Kurosawa as careers where it's like, damn, he made a lot of movies. And then the more you watch, it's like, damn, a lot of these are like fantastic. Hmm. So. I'm not trying to think if we've talked about Bergman. I think you talked about Fanny and Alexander. I definitely talked about Fanny and Alexander before. And I might again later in the episode, if we do our, our listener question. Oh little, yes. Little <laughs> teaser. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good pick. Thank you. You can take us home with uh, our last of the of the week. Sure. So 
when I was trying to find uh, movies to do for summer, the I thought, you know what, let's do something a little bit modern because 2020 was a weird year for movies. Not a whole lot came out and not a lot of like great films came out. But one that I really liked from that year was um, was the comedy kind of Groundhog Day type comedy uh, Palm Springs with Adam Sandberg and Christian Maletti. And so I'm like, oh, this is this would be a really good pick. And then my wife's like, well, they just it's in it takes place in November. They just said it takes place in November. <laughs> no. I'm like, yeah, I'm going with it. It's because it's a summery vibe. They're drinking beers in the pool and the little floaty pizzas and mm -hmm. and I mean I'm in I live in Saskatchewan where our winters are like we have a good one, two week stretch where it's always minus forty and below temperatures. So the, the whole concept of it being warm in summer is just so foreign to me that I just, my mind won't go there. So yep, in my yep. mind, this is summer. It's got <laughs> summer vibes. So it's, I'm going with it. I, <laughs> I respect and approve of your rationalization for that. If I can put Citizen Kane in as our, in our Christmas movies episode, then yeah, this right. is totally legit. Yep. It's fine. Uh, so when I was thinking about, when I was watching Palm Springs again, not too long ago, one thing that jumped out to me is as so as these these two characters are both stuck in this time loop, this Bill Murray time loop um, together, which is an interesting aspect that they actually, which is different from Groundhog Day, and one that they actually really build the movie on is the fact that there's two of them going through it together, um, living the same day over and over. And the the one little moment that really stood out to me is as they were. Yeah, as they're really getting to know each other and they're every day they're doing like weird stuff right and goofy things all and then you see you see uh adam sandberg's character wake up and then he wakes up and then he just has this giant smile on his face and i think a small little gesture like that says so much about what's going on in the movie because this is a guy who's been living the same day thousands of times you get the sense that he's been there for a long time. And um, and the fact that things now, like, that little smile just says, things are different for him right now. Right? Things are, even though he's been living the same day over and over, it's it seems fresh again. Because he's got this person to go, to go through it with. And I like it, even in the sense of the romance idea, because... I think that the successful movie romances are the most crucial thing is that we as an audience need to understand why these two characters are in love with each other. And this movie does that because it shows them having fun together, which is something I think the movies neglect is the fact that couples generally, their relationship is built on how much fun they have with each other. And this movie does that really well. And having them this like this wake up smile really get drives that home for us, right? It's like, okay, these two characters are really enjoying each other's company. Um, they're making each day worth it again, and it really helps you buy into their to their relationship. Yeah, yeah, I think it's um, I think that's really well put. I think it's the secret uh, ingredient that makes the movie so good. Is I mean, it's a funny comedy. But it really is it's like a romance that it actually really wins you over, I think, um, for the reasons you say. I mean, that's, you know, in general, I wish more, uh, The I think the make or break of like a lot of romances and films is like, do you, do you get to see them actually falling in love? And is it nice to go on that journey with them? And this yeah. one it is. Uh, I also actually think it's a really brilliant pick for our summer episode, even if it's not technically in the summer, because one, aesthetically, it looks like summer. But also, I think it captures a certain feeling of um, summer when you're in your kind of late teens or early 20s and you're out of high school and maybe you're you're in college or university or you're working, but you're not, you're kind of in between. And I think like the movie is really about that. Like it's about being in stasis and kind of coming to take comfort in the stasis because it's familiar. And I think summers in particular often feel like that when you're like 19, 20, I mean, and 
could be even far beyond. Even now, I still feel like I often can relate to that sense of like, you know, being in in, in between stasis that um, uh, on the one hand is stifling because you feel like you should be moving forward, but on the other hand is kind of comforting too because it becomes familiar and there's a there's a uh, a predictability in, in that that's reassuring. And I think the movie captures that really, really well. Yeah, the idea of existing in the moment and just appreciating that for a while while you're there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it's a it's a fun movie. Like it's, but at the same time, it is thoughtful and it gets pretty existential at points too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, th I really do think that without their core relationship it's not worth its its weight and salt. I think it's just, I think those two characters and the relationship and how well it's built is what makes the movie stand out a little bit above. Yeah, my... I agree. And I mean, it even goes back to the, you know, the originator of this concept in Groundhog Day, like as great as that movie's premise is and as great as the comedy is, it's, it's juice is the Bill Murray character is mm -hmm. watching him grow and sort of deal with his situation um, and the, and the weird tonal balance they hit of like comedy and drama that is like just right. Um, you know, cause like a lot of like edge of tomorrow was another big groundhog day style movie. And I like that film. I think it's a clever action film and it has some fun set pieces, but at the end of the day, it's like, I don't really care about these characters that much. Like they're fine for what the movie needs them to be. But, and, you know, there is something to be said about the fact the crew starts by playing, like, a complete, you know, shit heel and then becomes, like, a hero. But it's not, it's not resonant in the same way that Groundhog Day is, and it's not resonant in the same way that Palm Springs is. And it makes sense that this film, I think, will have a, a longer, excuse me, shelf life than a lot of the Groundhog Day-inspired uh, works that have come out. Yeah, that's a good point. I Because I, when I saw Edge of Tomorrow, I really liked it. I was like, oh, that is, that's an awesome movie. But I never saw it again. I never had. I never actually like went back and watched it a second time. So yeah. I think there's yeah. I think you're right there. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I like that movie. Like it's a good film, but yeah, you know, it it's is. just kind of. It, it doesn't have that. Like you realize, as great as the time loop premise is, it's only as good as the person that's going through it and what that journey means to them. Um, yeah. And yeah, the decision to make it two people in in Palm Springs was. Well, three, technically, when you throw in J.K. Simmons. <laughs> uh, which is also a good example of something that starts out like really wacky comedy, but then becomes like a lot more thoughtful and introspective, and you're not really expecting it to. Um, yeah. So, which J.K. Simmons is perfectly cast for, because he can do both. <laughs> so, Yeah, that's that's another really fun part of the movie. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah and I, I wish... I wish that romances would do this more. Like, just see why the characters actually care for each other and just existing in with their relationship for a while. Mm -hmm. Cause I think that's what definitely what the best ones do. They yeah. Really feel it. I agree. Yeah. So there we go. Palm Springs. If you haven't checked it out, do it's on, I don't know, a streaming service of some sort. I think it's sure. on prime. Yeah. Yes, that's is where I watched it. You're right. So, yeah. it's uh, it's a quality motion picture. Mm -hmm. I, it was more at two the best comedies of 2020. <laughs> yeah. Also on Prime, <laughs> actually. Hmm? Also a Prime movie. So, Amazon was out to make you laugh while making. Yeah, was this cry. was this released on streaming? Uh, I don't think it was a theater release. Was it? I don't think so because of the pandemic. I think it was planned to because I think it killed at Sundance. I could be misremembering. So if I am and a listener wants to correct me, that's a-okay. But I think it played really well at Sundance and Amazon acquired it and it was going to be their, you know, like a big movie for them. And then the pandemic hit. So um, it is, it, and it remains though kind of a perfect pandemic movie too. Because again, that feeling of like being in stasis. Yeah. And I will say like, I, I've, I've, I've been kind of in a weird way and I think a lot of people have discussed this kind of phenomenon nostalgic for the early months of the pandemic where like, yeah, things were terrifying, but at least people were also taking it seriously. Uh -huh. And, you know, 
there was as much as it like it sucked to be at home and not be able to go to the theater or like go to a restaurant, go to a bar. Um, I guess play sports if you're into that sort of thing. Um, I keep seeing these commercials where it's like these kids like it's so great to play sports. Then we've been stuck inside for so long. I'm like, shut up, you little brats. <laughs> I hate these kids. But uh, so it's it was a big deal for them to get back into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm being a dick, but uh, but like. As much as all that was was shitty, one, it was, you know, it did feel somehow comforting to think that the world was taking it seriously. And two, I did find that I was able to get a lot of uh, enjoyment and pleasure from my little bubble. As much as it sucked to be stuck within it, there's there was uh, comforts in there, too. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting how we look back on that in a few years. Mm hmm. Yep. Hopefully those few years come soon because living through this era has not been the most exciting of times. <laughs> or maybe it's been too exciting. I don't know. There's always something new in the news to stare into the abyss in. That's true. So, but I, yeah, Palm Springs is a really good film for capturing both the, the comfort of the lockdown era, but also the trip, the sort of desire to break from it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. If you haven't checked it out, give it a go. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. There's your summer movies or summer adjacent movies. <laughs> November can be summer too. Time is relative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that was good. I think we got a good few picks and still a couple months left of summer to go. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it cools down just a little bit and make it a little bit more enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, I would like to be able to go outside without immediately feeling like I need to have another shower. Um, that would be great. If yeah. you're listening, weatherman, make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so we had a listener question for this week. Right. Yes. Let me just pull that up here. Um, yeah, so we, have a we got an email from a listener, Justin. And he's got a question for us. So, yeah, if you want to, if you have another question for us, I guess send it to us, hey? Yeah. I'd be happy to. Maybe we talk. can make it like a, a weekly installment of the each week's podcast. We'll do like a question. Right. <laughs> this would provide we get a question every week, but you right. know. We'll have to send them to us. <laughs> okay. If so you send Jeff them, we'll answer them. <laughs> so, Justin asked us, and you're probably going to have better answers than I am. But he says, what are some favorite movie moments that you found only in director's cuts or deleted scenes that should have been left in the actual film? Uh, you've actually brought up one of these as one of your moments, right? The Terminator 2 one. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, the scene in T2 where uh, John Connor, um, they take out the CPO, CPU of the Terminator to reprogram it so that he can actually learn emotions. And Sarah goes to destroy it because it's like this thing that was like this monster that almost killed me and was so hard to destroy is like, it's like this tiny pathetic little thing in my fingertips that I could crush. And John has to stand up to her and he has this line of like, if I'm supposed to be this great, great leader, how am I supposed to do that when my own mother won't even listen to me? And it's a really good bit of character growth. Um, and that I think is kind of essential too in, in the fact that like, I think now people look back on T2 with a little bit of like, it's a great film and it's still regarded as such, but there's a little bit of like John Connor's really dated, like the nineties hacker kid. And he's like less egregious than he definitely could have been uh, in the same way that like Jurassic Park also has a whiz, gee whiz hacker kid, but it's, it's more tolerable because it's, you know, done <laughs> less crappy to put it in technical terms. But uh <laughs> I think this scene really gives him like narrative purpose and growth that's essential. So that's a good one. I have another one that I'll hold on yeah. to, but I'm, I'm curious what you're. Well, I don't really have a lot because honestly, like we've talked about this before, but I tend to shy away from director's cuts. Like I usually just go theatrical and I don't, I guess I'm just weird like that. Y you know. and Taiko Waititi. Yeah. I, I will say that quote. <laughs> Where he's I like, will. director's cuts are bad. Those things are cut for a reason. I'm not saying they're bad, but I'm just... <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just It's just something in my head. Uh, but of course, the, the ones that pop out to me are the Lord of the Rings ones, right? With the extended edition. Right. Which is kind of cheating because those tend to be like the versions that everybody watches now, I think. 
um, are the extended editions. Maybe I'm wrong in that, but yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, there's a lot of scenes that I actually don't like from those, especially in the Return of the King one. I think that they could have left those out. But see, uh, I will disagree with you there for one in particular, which is Saruman. I I hate that in the theatrical cut, it's just like ah, he's in the tower. It's fine. True, that's a good point. They do wrap up his arc, um, but then they've got others where they like are climbing on a pile of skulls that collapses, and then I don't mm -hmm. know. It's, there's some really dumb ones in that one. Uh, but Fellowship of the Ring, I think, has some really solid ones, especially if you're a Tolkien fan, because it really hints at kind of the the backstories of a lot of things. Like there's a scene where where they show them going through the like the the swamps and stuff when they're when it's just the four hobbits and Aragorn, and then Aragorn's telling them all these old stories from the history of Middle Earth that narratively doesn't need to be there, but it's just a nice. A nice touch and nice world building. Um, I think Fellowship's got a few like that. Mm -hmm. And then it's got that really fun opening where they're talking about hobbits and what hobbits are like too, which is kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, the extended editions are an interesting example too. Although it's funny though, because like Jackson has said he stands by the theatrical. Like I think he views the theatrical as like the movies and the extended editions are just kind of for fun. I think um, I'm with him on that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think I'm with him on that. I think that they're a little bit better paced as movies. Mm -hmm. The extended does have some fun scenes that, that yeah. I and thankfully, like I think now the only thing is I, I don't know how many editions of the releases have both the theatrical and the extended because I know some of them are just one or the other. But at least all of those versions are available. It's not like the, a Dances with Wolves situation where the Blu-ray is only the director's cut which I know is something that you've uh, expressed your frustrations over. Definitely. Um, the other one that came to mind, I actually found this a tougher question because I like a lot of director's cuts, but I find a lot of them, it's not necessarily... Well, in some cases, like Blade Runner, it's not really what's added, it's what's been taken out, namely the voiceover and the extra ending scene. Like, yeah, there's the unicorn editions, but those aren't really scenes, and they were also kind of put in after the fact because it's technically outtakes from uh, Legend. But, um, and like Kingdom of Heaven is another example in part because I haven't seen that movie in quite a while where I've only seen the director's cut for one. So I'm not 100% sure what's been, which scenes are the missing ones from the th uh, theatrical. But it's, it's kind of the overall experience of what that extra time adds than specific moments. But one scene that did stand out to me, and I talked about it in my Long Movies Are Good Actually video, is in Fanny and Alexander in the television cut. Uh, there is a scene with Fanny and Alexander's father where he's telling the children late at night when they're supposed to be asleep the story about like a magical chair. Um, and it's just this, you know, wooden chair in the room that he kind of makes this little uh, imagination story out of that's just really delightful and enchanting that one, I think, makes you like the character a lot more so that when he, he dies, it hits a lot harder. It's not just a plot beat to get Fanny and Alexander to the hands of the wicked stepfather. It's like, it's a crisis in and of itself for the viewer. Um, but I also think it really illustrates so much of why that character would hold such power in the family and his loss be so devastating because the other members of the family are actually a lot of them more colorful and on the surface interesting. This guy's a lot quieter and more reserved and kind of just humble but in this moment, you really feel his the, his love and creativity and just good natured um, spirits that and why he would be such a uh, a comfort to everyone in in his life, um, and I think it really gives a, a richer sense of the of, of him and the family. So that's a big one for me, um, and it's a cute scene too, where like he talks about the magic chair and then he. He goes to sit in it and the daughter freaks out because she's so bought into the story of like this chair and the person in it. And he has this moment of smiling of a little bit of pride, but also just delight in the wonder that he's sort of caused. It's really nice. Bergman's getting a lot of play. Yeah, he's, yeah. Uh, we love him. We love him on the show. We might be talking about him again before long. Um, I would say just because I'm going to stick in my nerd zone for a little bit. I kind of <laughs> like the, the bigs deleted scenes in uh star wars because um luke like talks about biggs and then when biggs like dies at the end it's like okay whatever but i kind of like mm. that i think that 
the special edition actually threw one in where he meets up with Biggs again. But yes. I'm pretty sure there was a cut scene earlier where he actually on Tatooine where he's actually like talking to Biggs at some point too. Yep. I but think you're right. Interesting one to keep, but and I will say the one that added is the one that's added in the special edition is one of the few special edition additions that I don't uh dislike. Yeah. Um it's well in part because it's not like, oh, we added like a CG, you know, lizard man in the foreground of the frame. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't feel incongruous within the world, which is nice. And it doesn't really disrupt the pacing that much. It's just this sort of brief little nice moment that gives more weight later to what happens. Right. So so yeah. that one I'm okay with. Um the other editions can burn in hell. <laughs> uh yeah, those are I think um those are, I think, some good examples. I know the Nixon director's cut has a lot that people champion, including a scene with uh, Sam Waterston as the head of the CIA, but I haven't seen the director's cut. Um, I own it now on Blu-ray, so that'll be the next time I watch Nixon, that'll be the version, because I love that movie. But um, uh, I have not seen it, so I can't speak to it as a great scene. Oh, one actually that I do like, and it's not a movie I very much enjoy, but the third Pirates of the Caribbean movie, there's a deleted scene between... Jack Sparrow and the head of the East India Trading Company, who's played by, I think, is his name Tom Hollander? Uh, yes. I yeah. So. I know it's very close to Tom Holland, but it's not. It's the guy from In the Loop. That's what yeah. I know him from. But they're alluding to the fact that Jack used to work for the East India Trading Company and he sort of um, betrayed them. And the, specifically, he was hired to transport slaves. And that's why he did that. And he's got this line Jack does where he says, um, people aren't cargo and it's this little moment that like if you're not if you're like a kid you might not even fully grasp what they're talking about but i think it's it's a i get why it was cut because that movie's already just like unreasonably long and bloated but i think it really is a miss a missing piece because those movies as they go jack becomes less of a character and more of a cartoon mm -hmm. and a line like that is really good at, at sort of grounding him and giving him some sense of a moral compass and and of and of uh, values and not just being like a agent for whatever wacky set piece or comedic gag they want to do. Um, so that I think is is a is a very much a missing piece that should have been kept in. Yeah, I was not aware of that one. Interesting. We could have used ten less minutes of multiple Jack Sparrows running around in an island in like this purgatory because that was uh, truly torturous and uh, <laughs> more time spent with like meaningful character interactions i think what do you think about the tom scarrett um in the alien cocoon scene from alien I was, I was thinking about that one in isolation i love it as a scene because i think it's truly terrifying um i get why it was cut for like just simple pacing reasons and i also now it's tricky because aliens sort of uh gave a different explanation for how the eggs are made with a queen right. so Although you could argue that, like, I mean, we don't know. These are made-up things. So you could just say, well, when uh, one of the creatures is isolated and there isn't a queen present, it can, you know, nature finds a way. It's it's its body find, uh, sort of adapts to create new cocoons. Um, I don't know. I get why it was cut, but I love it, and I do love how just weird it is. Yeah. Like, it's not just a monster killing or eating people. It's like, you know. It would be curious to see what people's reaction would be. and. Mm, like mm. when it came out yeah so, i mean we're we're more used to it because we've seen the other alien movies but that's mm -hmm. yeah, definitely weird and it's it's like a just a weird science fiction idea too at a time where you know coming after star wars science fiction was a little more maybe streamlined and, and pulp and and sort of straightforward and this is not it's it's such a it really crosses over too into into full-blown body horror and in a way that like makes it a really good companion to the chest burster sequence, which is probably probably the best scene in the film, I would mm -hmm. argue. Um, and this is an interesting companion piece to it where it's not just the terror of getting slashed by this weird looking monster. It's like the weird psychological discomfort you get from watching the, the way it like transforms bodies and not knowing what it's doing. And oh man. And I think Tom Scarrett's performance in it is really good. Like he just looks so like, enfeebled and like you get why i'm like yeah i'd want to die too 
<laughs> Light me up, Sigourney. I'm ready to go. <laughs> no. so. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, there we go. That was our summer movie episodes. And thanks for the question, Justin. Uh, yeah, if anybody else has any questions for us, uh, you can tweet at us at cinema underscore seconds or send us an email at cinema in seconds at gmail.com. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, any anything you got coming up? Um, so new video has been written and recorded. I'm currently in the process of editing it, but it'll probably take a while because it's a lot of raw audio. Uh, whenever I say I'm going to do something loose and fun, it's like <laughs> here's over two hours of audio to cut down, idiot. Cool. <laughs> so that'll be coming at some point in July, probably. So, cool. yeah. Uh, otherwise, you can check out my video on BBS and the uh, or the last picture show on the legacy of BBS, which uh, is one of my favorites that I've done lately. I think I'm very proud of that. Awesome. Well. Enjoy your summer, everybody. Uh, this is obviously not our only episode in summer. We're coming back next week. But, um, yeah, enjoy the hot weather. Enjoy the rainy weather, whatever you've got. Enjoy it. And I've been Ian. And I'm Daniel. And we'll see you next time. Summer.